So you want to open your own firm. Well, you've come to the right place. Today's episode of The Ruling Podcast features Brandon Leopoldis, a solo practitioner who focuses on sports law and is based out of Los Angeles, California. He actually began his career as an umpire in minor league baseball before going to law school. He worked in a few firms before eventually starting his own in 2018. He has worked with NFL players and the MILB Umpire Association. Today's episode really features all the ins and outs of running your own law firm. You know, I think it's important that you know if you're going to take that next step that a lot of what you're doing is running a business and starting a business instead of just doing legal work. So Brandon, you know, and I talk about percentage of time that he spends doing legal work versus just building his brand or his image or meeting new people, meeting potential clients, all of those kinds of things. You know, running your own firm is is very different than working in somebody else's firm. There's a lot more responsibilities, but also at the same time, there's also a lot of pros. So in this podcast, we really uh, talk about all of those pros, all of those cons, and kind of just what it takes to be a solo practitioner in the legal field. Uh, along with some of those uh, discussions about being a solo practitioner, we also talk about some of the recent discussions between the MLB and MLBPA, some of the chaos involved with it, as well as maybe what exactly bad faith negotiations means when the MLBPA claims that the MLB is not negotiating in that way. Uh, keep in mind that this podcast was recorded before the MLB and MLBPA uh, came to an agreement about the upcoming season, but I think that most of the uh, discussion in here is still going to be very relevant. Brandon, you know, you have kind of a unique background as a minor league baseball umpire. Talk about that experience and just kind of how you got into it. Uh, sure. Uh, so it, it's kind of interesting. Everybody has a different start into sports. For me, um, it even started, I mean, it started 10 years before I even got into umpiring. Um, when I was a kid, my sister was an elite level gymnast, which is the highest level of gymnastics you can go. These are the Olympic type athletes. And so in like 1990 or so, I'm 10 years old, and my sister had been on the national team for several years at that point. Um, she didn't go, uh, she was too young for like the soul games, missed Barcelona by, um, you know, a fall on floor or something like that. And but during the time we were in Colorado Springs. So we're growing up at the Olympic Training Center. You know, I'm 10 years old wearing my Little League uniform, running around the USA boxing gym. And, uh, you know, hanging out at the USA basketball facility and, you know, just shooting baskets, waiting for my pan the butt sister to be done with her workout or her training and all that stuff. And it was three or four days a week. Like, that was just part of the deal. My parents would pick me up from Little League and we'd go over there and wait for my sister. And it was a day-to-day thing. That was just life. And so I didn't even realize how just fortunate I was that I got the the whole behind the scenes access just because of my sister. And when she went away to college, 
Um, I'm, she's the number one recruit in the country. She goes to Penn State. She becomes an All-American there. Um, the first year she's away, maybe a month or two after school starts, I'm a sophomore in high school, maybe a junior. My mom says, well, what are you going to do uh, for college if you thought about where you want to go? And I said, yeah, when do they start to recruit me? Because I didn't know that my sister had an abnormal ability in anything. She was just my sister. And so my mom has to explain to me that they don't recruit everybody. Like, I don't, I'm not going to play college sports. And it kind of dawned on me, and I wasn't disappointed. It made sense. Like, I, I just couldn't figure it out. And so I got a summer job umpiring Little League Baseball uh, because I didn't want to work at a fast food joint, right? That, that was were kind of the options. And I made $20 a game, which if you're in high school in, you know, the – late 90s was a lot of money like i thought i was rich <laughs> and right. i had no idea what i was doing but i loved it and i continued to do that all summer i just had a had a passion for it even though i didn't know what most of the rules were but i'm still umpiring i didn't know the positioning they don't teach you this when you're umpiring little league they just give you the rule book and you know hope that you show up to your game and i eventually start working high school games before i graduate high school uh, and so I'm the youngest guy to ever umpire a high school game in Colorado. And I was like 16 when I started working high school JV game. And somebody finally said, you should go to umpire school. And I said, oh, great. What's that? I had no idea. And basically it's a trade school. It's about a month long. It's five weeks in Florida in January um, because it's taught by professional umpires. And so the only time they're not working is, you know, November, December, January. And so you go down there. And there was about 100 people in my class, and they start with, this is a baseball, this is what it's made out of, and then the next day they test you on it. And they test you every single day on the stuff you learned the day before, the week before, and they go through the positioning and all of that stuff. And each day gets progressively more in-depth, just like you would in school. But by the end of those five weeks, they're yelling at you. They're doing simulated games. So if a spaceship lands in the outfield, the sprinklers turn on, the, light, the lights fail, the fan runs on the field, the pitcher throws an illegal pitch with an illegal glove, and a guy hits it with an illegal bat, um, and then the outfielder, you know, has the ball ricochet off of him and over the fence, you know how to umpire that situation cold. The thing that separates everybody is can you get yelled at, keep your composure, and still make the right decisions? And... Unfortunately, not a lot of people can do that. It's not really a skill people have. And fortunately, you can yell at me and I can still get my job done. And so, and I don't take a lot of crap from people. So I got to go to the minor leagues, got a contract later that year, and bounced around for five years. Now, the cool part about doing that job is I was 20 years old when I worked my first game. And it was very, very cool. Day one, I'm in a podunk town on the East Coast where there might have been 200 people at my game. And I have a shirt with a patch sewn on it. I, was, I thought that I was in the big league. I was going to the Hall of Fame that day, right? Like, this is everything I had worked up to for the last few years. And now I'm a, I'm a professional baseball. 20 years old, I'm getting a check to do this. And it was great. Loved it. And you start to see the behind-the-scenes stuff, the stuff fans don't see. And that includes being hurt every day. Everybody's hurt every single day. You just are. It's the grind, right? You see that some managers 
are they've been there forever and so they're names you recognize and some guys are in the hall of fame other guys are the washouts some guys are just upset all the time it has nothing to do with you you have players from the dominican republic that have never worn shoes you have the bonus babies that from arizona or florida that have five million dollars in the bank account and yet they're on a team with some player that's making 480 a month and then you go to the longer seasons and you see guys getting divorced before batting practice over a cell phone. And you have a guy one day, you find out the next day that he got released or that he quit because it's really hard. And it's not just the talent level. Some of the best players I've ever seen never got to the big leagues, but it's just the grind can get to some people. And so when you see the, the culture and the, the dynamic of it, um, you just become kind of immune to it. You just, that's the, what life is. And so that's, uh, that was the fun part is when you're there on the grind every day and you know what everybody's fighting for, even as an umpire, right? You want to get promoted. You want to get to that next level because you're that much closer to the big leagues and everybody's doing that. Some guys would be on their way down. Other guys would be on their way up. And it was great to be a part of that community where everybody's striving for that. And some were going to hit it and most of us weren't. But that uh, it gives you a great encapsulation because you're part of that as well. I just don't have to hit the damn ball. Thank God. Uh, so great job. It was, it was a perfect time in my life, too. If I was doing it now, I would have already had some knee problems. I'd have hip problems. I've, I had plenty of concussions in the minor leagues. I couldn't do that job at the age of 40. So those guys that I went to umpire school with that are there now, God bless them. I wouldn't want to trade places with them. That that's awesome. I mean that that's a lot to digest. But the two things really that stick out to me were one the having to get yelled at and making the right decision, right? Because I think that's the mm-hmm. thing that we know most about maybe umpires or referees is people are always angry at them no matter what they do. And then the second thing is just the grind of playing minor league baseball. And so, you know, I, my older brother played uh, professional golf for a couple of years, but he played on the mini tours. So he played kind of like web.com, um, you know, swing thought stuff, mainly stuff in the Southeast and in uh, Canada as well. And the grind, I don't think people completely realize the grind of, playing the level right below the major leagues or the PGA Tour, right? It's not glorious. It is a grind, like you said, players getting divorced over the phone right before batting practice or making $480 a month. Is that kind of what you're saying, right? You know, it's, yeah, it, it's, yeah. There's, there's not a whole lot of money involved, and it's, it is a battle of stamina sometimes, right? A battle of stamina, not Absolutely. always – the most talented player, but just the one who's able to fight through it. And so I, I think that yeah. picture is so interesting to see where you're able to see that as an umpire in that, uh, you know, at that level. And so, you know, with that in mind, thinking about the grind of the minor league system, as well as having to deal with getting yelled at, you know, what, what kind of skills were you able to develop during that time as an umpire that you think help you now in your law practice? Oh, gosh, a really good question. Um, I think there's two or three things. The first one is self-confidence. Um, there are not a lot of people 
that lack confidence at some level that can I, I don't think can be successful. It doesn't mean they can't make a lot of money, right? Um, you can be down in the dumps depressed. We've, we have numerous examples of this. Talented people can make a lot of money, but can you be successful without being self-assured? If we're always out there looking for other people's approval, we may not get to where we need to be for ourselves to consider to be successful. I got to A-ball and I feel like I was a success because I walked out of there knowing that I did everything I could. I don't have one regret for my career. Um, that's one thing that if you can look yourself in the mirror at the end of the day and know that you did what you believe is right and that you gave it everything you have, there's nothing to regret. You've reached your top, even if that wasn't the top of the world. So that would be the first thing. Uh, the second thing is being able to plan out and anticipate things. When we were driving from town to town, sometimes these drives were 12 hours. And during those times, we know we're going to get yelled at on a day-to-day basis. You just are. It's the nature of the job. You have personality conflicts. You have uh, managers that have to yell at you for you know to keep their kids in line and to, to make sure that these kids are learning how to win because it's a cutthroat business. And so we would prepare for managers and players as we were driving from town to town. So, for example, if we were driving um, in the Midwest League to Dayton, Ohio, and we have a four-hour drive, we might be discussing, okay, Don Money's the manager over here, and Ed Cedar's the manager over here. Hey, remember last time when Ed yelled at you about this? Well, what would you do if he said it the next time? Let's play that out. So one person would play manager and the other person would play umpire. And so you were able to anticipate what's going to happen here, right? Um, some athletes use visual, visualization techniques. And we did the same thing as umpires. We just played that game out in our mind and worked on what are our skills? What do we need to do? And as you do that, you start to get in that process of being able to make very quick decisions because you've already made those decisions, Right. Now, usually the first time we do something, it takes us twice as long as the second time. And so when, when we'd be in those situations, those first series were always difficult. We were trying to iron out, figure out who everybody was. And then we would get to those situations where now we can adjust. And if we're working on adjustment rather than the actual job itself, so much easier. So that was the second big thing that I took from baseball. And the third is just knowing what your limits are, Right. Uh, I know that I can put my body or my mind through a lot uh, and still be okay. I know that there's that extra 10% that even when I feel like I don't have it, I still can. Um, doesn't mean that I don't need an app the next day. Don't get me wrong. But those are kind of the things, and they're all internal more than anything else. Those are things that I could control. Um, I, I learned a lot about what I couldn't control. But if you have those things internally worked out, it's going to show itself externally as well. And I feel like a lot of those skills that you even just mentioned are probably important for you as, as somebody who's a solo practitioner, you know, when you're going out and starting your own yeah. firm, right? That you have to be confident in yourself. I know it, it's, you know, if you are opening your own firm and you're not confident in yourself, you, you're probably going to struggle, right? And you've got to be willing to kind of go a little bit of past the extra mile. And like you said, find that extra 10% in yourself when things are tough. Um, and you have to be prepared, right? And you have to kind of see uh, where you're going and, and 
plan out what you're about to do, right? Would you say all of those kinds of things have helped you in your transition to uh, being a solo practitioner? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the biggest thing with being a solo for me is knowing that I can't do it all. And with my practice, I'm doing a lot for a lot of my clients where I may be hired to do one thing and it's going to morph into me doing 10 things for them. But it's when they need something that I am not equipped to handle. It's not my area of expertise. Somebody does it better, faster, cheaper, uh, better for the client. I need to get them to that person. And the other thing with that is knowing that I am self-assured enough to know that if I refer somebody out to another person, whether it's an attorney, an insurance agent, a car wash specialist, uh, you know, a, a real estate agent, that I have the right connections for them and I'm providing them the value in whatever value language they're speaking, right? Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's ego. Sometimes uh, it's, you know, it's other things. It's time, money, or ego for just about everything. And so if I can provide them that value, they're going to stick with me. Even if that means that they're not a paying client, the best referral source for me are happy clients. And so I have a lot of uh, football players just out of numbers that when they say, when somebody asks them about something, oftentimes they'll tell them somebody to call me, even though it's not a legal question they have, right? It's something else. They need something else. But the my client will say, Brandon will handle that. He knows the right people. And that's what I want. So yeah, being a solo practitioner, it's not just about the practice of law. It's the practice of pro- uh, providing value to whoever you come in contact with. Right, right. And you started your, uh, you know, law career working in other firms and in kind of working within sports practices, right? So what did you like and dislike about working for other firms and what ultimately led you to open up your own? Uh, Great question. You know, when you're working with other firms, other lawyers, even on the other side of the table, one of the things you take away is that there's a million ways to do each thing right? Um, if you and I are going to make grilled cheese sandwiches, not a hard thing to do, right? We can all probably do that or fry an egg. Take your example here. We can do it two completely different ways and end up with a same or similar enough result, right? Um, if there was only one way to do it, you'd get rid of 95 and a half percent of the restaurants in the world. And most businesses wouldn't exist because all you got to do is plant your flag first. And so, uh, what I've found is when you're working with other lawyers, you get to pick and choose some of the things you like and don't like from their practices. Some people are more organized. Some people use a different computer system. Some people provide language that you like in a contract that you didn't even think of using. And you can pick that out and make yourself better. So that's the part I really like about, um, I liked about being in other firms and when I'm working with other lawyers. Um, the reason I started my own firm was I had had two iterations of it. One, I was very young. I was in my third year, uh, and nobody really wants a third-year solo practitioner to handle multi-million-dollar athletes, you know, legal world because you just don't have enough experience. So I'd handle some things time to time. I had some umpire clients. I had people that I knew, and that was great. But the second time that I started my firm about two years ago, um, I was at the the firm I was at. It just didn't make economic sense. The way that the firm was operating, 
and the what my my athlete clients needed were two different things. They were diametrically opposed in some cases. And for me, I knew that I had enough of a of a base of people to draw from that wanted to work with me that it, I could make that economic model work if I was on my own rather than paying the overhead of a firm. And so that's what led me to uh, reopen my solo practice because it just made sense as I talked to my referral partners, right? The CPAs, the business managers, financial advisors, the agents, um, and those potential clients. When I said, what do you want to offer? And they all said the exact same thing. They said, we want quick, good, reliable legal work. We want access to be able to ask questions and just have things handled should they arise pretty quickly. Um, three, we want cost certainty. And four, we just want access. If we have to call you on a Saturday, we don't want to have you know surge pricing from our lawyer. Um, and I knew that I could provide that. And so that was the model I built it on. And that's the model I continue to use today. And it's different than most law firms in the country. Um, but for my client base, that's exactly what they want. And so, um, you know, when the customer tells you what they want, um, there's got to be a company out there to give it to them. And you mentioned that you had kind of a book of clients already when you were working in those other firms. Do you think it's a key to have that book of clients or those relationships before you try to go out and start your own firm? Um, and on top of that, how would you advise somebody on uh, starting their own firm if they were interested in doing so? Yeah, good question. Um, I wish I could have started my own firm both times with a little bit more savings. Um, because, you know, running your own business is not cheap. Um, you can do it on the cheap. It still doesn't mean that it's free. Right, you got to buy a computer. You got to have insurance. You got to do this. You got to do that. And by the time you look at it, you're five thousand dollars into this venture in the first day, and that gets tough because if you don't have that five thousand dollars, do you put it on a credit card? Do you float your bills? How do you do that? Because you're not going to have paying clients in the door day one generally. So it's gonna there's gonna be a lag time there. You have to reintroduce people to your new brand, even if you are your brand. And so having those connections and not just the LinkedIn connections, LinkedIn's great. I love it. Um, I do a lot on LinkedIn, but that's not a client base. That's not revenue that's ready to come in the door, but having warm relationships with people that know I can trust you already. That's a situation where if you have an abundance of those people that are receptive, they like you, they call you for things that's an opportunity to capitalize one way or the other. Uh, and for me, it's more than just being a lawyer. It's being able to provide um, some business consulting for clients or for consulting clients that are out of state. Um, it's another thing to be able to just provide some seminars I do on the side. So that's another revenue generator that provides value. But as you start your own firm, you need to know financially just to survive what you have coming in when you start your firm and what your business plan looks like to begin with, right? Earlier I'd said that if you have a plan, it goes a lot easier. Same thing here with business. If you don't have a business plan, you better have a realistic business plan and those action steps to get you to each one of your goals before you open your firm because that will tell you if you have a hole in there, you don't have the top three, four, five referral sources or the top five identified potential clients, 
you're probably going to have a really hard time getting revenue in the door. People aren't going to come to you just because you're a lawyer. Would you almost say that you're maybe even a little bit more of a businessman than a lawyer sometimes? Like, what percentage of a split would you say, you know, I spend this amount of time doing legal work versus this amount of time maybe uh, more working on the business side of the firm? Oh, goodness. Yeah, I, I will say that my, pre-COVID anyway, I bet it was 25% legal work, 75% business. And that's because I'm in a rapid growth stage of my business. Um, that means I'm doing the marketing, right? I'm out networking, shaking hands, meeting people, um, getting to know them, finding ways to connect them with other people that they're in the need for, right? That was probably 75% of my day. The 25% was doing the nuts and bolts, contracts, paperwork, you know, lawsuits, that stuff. Um, now, it's probably about 50-50 still, right? I take time to do a podcast. I take time to introduce people that I find to be of like mind that might benefit from one another. And the big part of that is you need a sustainable business. You don't just need business today that's paying. You're going to need business 15 months from now that's going to pay. Um, I was on the phone earlier this week. Um, gosh, I take that back. It was late last week. Um, COVID schedule here. Um, mm. Late last week, we were on a phone call. Nothing could possibly come of what we were talking about for 15 to 18 months. But it's laying the groundwork because when this opportunity, if it comes to fruition, hits, I want to be the only person they think of. And so being able to provide value, and sometimes it's just free work. Right. It doesn't mean that you're taking on pro bono clients, but it means providing value to people, even if they're not paying you, because that's just what you're going to have to do. And I find that if you put value out into the world and uh, just don't expect a return, you're going to see a return. Right. It might be onefold. It might be tenfold. It might not be financially. It could just be that good karma is going to get you that uh, you're going to be able to get that green light when uh, normally you would, whatever it is. I want to get out and help as many people in the space as I can. And those connections are key, right? Your relationships are the value of your business. That's really what it's about. And if you're kind of marketing yourself, how, do you describe yourself as like a sports and entertainment lawyer? Or uh, how, how would you say like percentage-wise the amount of work you do uh, is sports-related? Uh, so great question, because I, I get that a lot from law students, young lawyers, people that want to work in sports law. How do I get involved in sports law? Well, all sports law is, is doing legal work for clients that happen to have a touch in the sports. I work with individual clients, um, organizations, and businesses that are in that space. That goes from, you know, Hall of Fame basketball players to an umpire's union to uh, a yoga mat manufacturer. The yoga mat manufacturer is, is just a business. It's a consumer goods product, right? But when we're talking about sports, how can I provide them the most value? Part of it's the legal work. Part of it is strategic connections to venture funds that have a touch into sports, to um, operators of stores that happen to have worked with other clients before that I can put them in touch and say, by the way, these guys have a really cool product. Why don't, you know, why don't you take a look at it? Let me know if I can put you in touch with the owner. 
because now we can create some value. So uh, with with that, I bet it's I bet seventy five percent of my work is what I consider sports law, sports business related. Twenty five percent are come from those same connections. A financial advisor friend of mine who is a sometimes client um, sends me business clients about once a month because um, I've helped out a bunch of his athlete clients. We're doing really the same type of work. It's just different considerations when you're working with an athlete who happens to be a business owner compared to um, somebody with an MBA that happens to be a business owner that never played in the NBA. And I think that idea that you know, sports law really is just all these different areas of law coming together. I think that's something that I do like to show kind of through this podcast as I talk to more people is really there's so many different things you can do within the sports industry when it comes to law, right? Whether it's, you know, it could be employment labor law. uh, It could be antitrust law, um, you know, contract law, personal injury law, uh, you know, real estate mergers and acquisitions, intellectual property, you know, all of those things touch sports in some capacity. So I think it doesn't shock me that, you know, you're not really technically doing like a sports law type thing. You're just more so working with athletes. Is that kind of a good way to describe Mm it? Yeah, there's a very good way of putting it. Because you're right. If if you think about estate planning, um, it takes a specialty to understand the lay of the land. Just like if I go to vacation in Japan, I've never been to Japan. I know very little about the culture, right? But I do have an umpire friend of mine who I was in spring training with for three years that if I'm going to Japan, he's going to be my guy, right? I'm using Toshi Uchikawa for everything because I'm going to go there and I'm going to need some help. He understands the culture, the customs, and all of the things that I'm not going to necessarily know. And he understands me and my mindset, right? So he's going to be able to anticipate some of those problems I'm going to have. You know, if I, if I walk into a McDonald's there, he's going to say, it's going to be more expensive than what you're used to, or it's going to taste a little different, whatever it is. Same thing if I'm working with athletes. Most of what I do for athletes is business related, right? It's vetting potential deals. It's vetting advisors. It's setting up a loan out corporation for them. It's, uh, you know, helping them get out of a bad financial situation, dealing with a family issue, or just helping them understand what it's like to go from college to the professional level. All of those things are because I understand the industry. I've been through the NFL draft 15 times. These kids are going through it for the first time. And so if I'm able to help them understand that, just from a cultural perspective, the culture of sports, it becomes so much easier. I don't have to ask the questions. So if you're a, let's get back to the uh, the estate planning lawyer, that estate planning lawyer for athletes needs to understand what the pension benefits are for an athlete, what a possible injury settlement for their post-career is going to look like financially, right? Because that can get planned in to the estate plan. And if they don't have those, well, it's just not an accurate estate plan. It's an off-the-rack thing that they could have done for any other 27-year-old. But if they also understand the life expectancy, right, life expectancy for NFL players, you know, a few years shy of what it is for the average American. Well, we need to consider that, right? 
And so all of those things play in. If you understand the industry, there's space for you to succeed. Yeah, absolutely. And I know one of the clients that you work with is your umpire associations. So talk to us a little Mm -hmm. bit about your experience working with labor unions and maybe, you know, the important law that you have to know to be able to do that kind of work within sports. Certainly. Uh, Great question. And this is, you know, as we record this, we have the uh, Major League Baseball Players Association and Major League Baseball hopefully negotiating a 2020 season. We're just not sure yet of what's going to come of that. And oftentimes people just think of it as a contract. And while that's true, a collective bargaining agreement is a contract, it's not necessarily the same that you'd see otherwise. So I also work with amateur sports officials unions, right? So like high school basketball officials, that type of thing. Those are different, right? Those are independent contractors. For the Association of Minor League Umpires, those guys are employees of minor league baseball. And so not only do you have employment laws, right? You have OSHA regulations for health and safety in a workplace, um, but you also have some tax laws, right? How much money do we want to get these guys a salary compared to per diem? Because these guys aren't making a fortune, right? They're, and they're making less than probably anybody listening to your podcast on a month-to-month basis. You know, during the season, some of these guys are only going to make $14,000 for the year. And so they have to find another job. So what that means is we have to get them as much take-home pay as possible. And that might not be in wages. It might be in actual per diem because it's taxed at a different rate or not taxed at all for that matter. And so then we have to decide, you know, some health and safety things. You need to know some insurance rules and regulations. Um, one of the things in the collective bargaining unit is where they can collect a workers' compensation claim. And you need to understand a little bit about workers' compensation law. So when we talk about labor unions, oftentimes we just talk about the labor law aspect, but there's a lot of minutia that are in those contracts, right? So what happens when somebody gets terminated, right? Um, you need to understand some of the COBRA regulations. You need to understand the unemployment claims. Um, we've been dealing with that across the country and across the world right now. And so all of these things, kind of make up that collective bargaining agreement. Um, But I always take it back to understanding the industry, right? Uh, If you have me negotiate the NFLPA deal with the NFL, I am a fish out of water. I know enough about what my clients in the NFL need, but I couldn't tell you what the NFL pension program looks like off the top of my head. But with minor league umpires, if you had DeMarie Smith and Casey Schwab and the lawyers at the NFLPA come and negotiate that deal for our guys, they're going to be a fish out of water, right? Um, those are things where understanding the industry at a very minute level helps you get to some of those goals, helps you understand what's going on. And the answers that you don't know from a legal perspective, you at least know what you're looking at and where to look it up. That's the biggest thing is not every lawyer. No, I take that back. No lawyer understands all of them, right? So even when we come down to like this year, we had, um, an issue with umpires not going to spring training. And so we had to understand if they're going to collect unemployment or they not. And we had to work through that. And if they were going to collect unemployment, there are 50 different states. I think umpires come from 46 states and I think like eight or nine countries. So then we had to dig into the CARES Act 
something I never thought I'd get into, to see who's eligible to collect unemployment and who's not. How do we go through that process? How much are they going to get? And helping those members understand that. And so there's a lot to a collective bargaining agreement rather than just how many games are played and how much do you get paid. And given that there's so many different types of legal issues at play in those collectively bargained agreements, do the labor unions tend to have like specialists from different areas come in and, and either negotiate or talk about those issues? For example, like the, the tax issues, right? Do they usually bring in tax lawyers or, uh, you know, are there, is there just a set number of attorneys working in the players association or the union who are able to kind of understand all of it? Great question. Um, for the big players unions, like the big four, if you think about it, uh, even the big five with, with soccer being one of those, you're probably going to have some different specialists. Like, I know with the NFLPA and the MLBPA, they have specialists in just about everything. And that's great because then you can get a comprehensive feel for what's going on. When, you have, when you're negotiating with a billion-dollar league or multi-billion-dollar league, they have specialists at every corner. Uh, the union's going to need those too. And so you have to kind of pool your resources to figure some of those things out. Um, the good part about having a specialist is, of course, they're going to give you a you know, complete picture of a very small area. It, as you do that, remember, it's just like a snapshot. You don't get the full panoramic picture of the whole industry. And so you have to take what their advice is and then combine it, put it in kind of the, the cauldron here to figure out what you're going to make. Uh, because sometimes you have to sacrifice one in order to get the other. We're kind of seeing that with baseball right now. Do you want to get more games for the players and for the league, or do you want to um, get them more money? What's going to be more important? What about the health and safety condition? And that's why all these moving pieces create a little bit of animosity and chaos. And so for, a, a, for some unions, they're just too small. They can't afford to bring in specialists. There's a limited amount of resources. So that's where, um, you know, a good network for a lawyer allows you to call some friends, allows you to call some colleagues and say, hey, can I pick your brain for 10 minutes? And it, they'll at least point you in the right direction. So that way you have a little bit more basis, right? You just had somebody give you a primer on tax law that you didn't normally have maybe since law school, but you're able to go and figure out, get that information that you need. Now, you might have to go back later to get some deeper information, but as you negotiate a collective bargaining agreement, the good part is both sides have to kind of work together. It's not a kill or be killed scenario all the time. There are things that everybody agrees on. It's just a matter of what's the most efficient way to process those things. And so some of those type of things are easily taken care of, while others, when there's a sticking point, you have to figure out a way to make it work. Well, and on that note, what do you kind of make of the current strife between, you know, the MLB and the MLBPA, you know, and what I kind of found interesting too is the MLBPA's stance that the MLB is kind of negotiating in bad faith. Like, what do you, what do you make of that kind of talk and that kind of strife between those two parties? Yeah, they have a long, bloody history of negotiations. I mean, it doesn't take uh, too long for any sports fan to start thinking back to the 94 strike. Um, or back to Kurt Flood, um, you know, Andy Messerschmidt and Marvin Miller and, and the free agency and everything that's developed over time. 
Um, so they have a long, rich history. Part of this is that we don't have, you know, the pun intended here, the inside baseball of it all. Um, we don't know what's actually being discussed. And it seems like a lot of this is being negotiated uh, through the newspaper, right? Bob Nightingale's writing a great article every single day because he seems to be the middleman here. Um, and I don't know that that's necessarily the case. But what I see is that there's a lot of public posture. And I think a big part of that, honestly, just judging from the outside in my experience, is that the COVID situation has a big, you know, pink elephant in the corner that nobody has an answer to, right? We could solve the money thing tomorrow, but then it's how does the testing work? Is there a bubble? Is there not a bubble? We see the NBA going through this thing right now. They seem to all be in agreement other than, you know, you're putting a bubble over these players. Well, what about the employees of Disney? They're not in the bubble. So wait, so does the bubble exist? And now I see something today about um, if a player leaves the bubble, that they're going to be quarantined for two weeks and they're going to have a reduction in pay. Well, okay, that opens up another can of worms and another can of worms. This COVID is not a situation that we've ever seen before. And it's also not something that society as a whole has an answer for. You can think it's absolute nonsense or you can think it's the worst thing in the world. Regardless, you have to think of the health and safety of the workforce. And it's a very bad PR if LeBron James, for example, gets COVID and gets deathly sick. Nobody wants that. But at the same time, what about Greg Popovich? He's in his 60s. He's more likely to have severe consequences. We don't want him to get sick. We don't want anybody to get sick. But you have to keep all those things in mind because imagine the PR battle. If we all go back to playing basketball, it'll be a ratings hit, and then somebody noteworthy gets this thing and passes away. Holy cow, it takes the wind right out of the room and then makes everybody think, was this worth it? Was his life worth the sacrifice? And that's the thing I keep coming back to is that's a question that I, I have an answer for, but a lot of people don't have an answer for it, and that's okay because my answer may not be the right one. My answer is absolutely not. Nobody should be risking their life to play basketball, football, baseball, hockey, you know, anything. Hula hoop. It doesn't matter to me. I don't want to risk somebody's life, so we need to find a way to do that safely. We've seen that in golf. Golf's doing a great job right now. Uh, we're going to see it with tennis. I can see how these sports with social distancing are going to work out. But now we're in these close contact team sports. How do we keep it as safe as possible for everybody? And then I go from there to, is that good enough? And those are questions right now. We, none of us have a good plan for that. So it's a dynamic situation, and this is where really creative lawyers happen. Yeah, and I think that you – Hit it on the head there. Maybe just the issue is who, who, who does the blame fall on, right? And I think the the battle in baseball almost seems to be that neither side wants to be blamed for baseball not happening this season, right? And and you know the the MLB I think is trying to, you know, make the players look bad by saying, hey, if we don't play this year, like it's the players' fault. And you know then it's again this whole PR battle, like you said between the newspapers where we're just kind of learning everything from that and uh, they're communicating that way. Um, but no, I mean, I'm with you. There's, you know, obviously COVID is such a unique 
situation and we're battling two things that we want, right? One of which is live sports. Yeah. And the other thing is the health of all of these athletes and all the people involved in putting on these sporting events. And so now it's you got to find the balance between those two. And ideally, hopefully, we're able to find the balance. But of course, there is a concern that you bring up is maybe there isn't a great balance because if one person gets it and one person were to die from it, was it really worth it? Like, was it was it worth like my entertainment on a Saturday night watching the Lakers play the Nuggets for even just a staff member? It, I mean, it doesn't even have to be an athlete, a staff yeah. member dying from COVID or an assistant coach uh, or like you said, a Disney employee dying from COVID. It's a total PR nightmare. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and <laughs> it's just you could talk about it for days, just the ramifications of how all this will work out, um, whether, like you said, the bubble concept will work. You know, my cynical side says, heck no. I can't imagine how <laughs> all the NBA players are going to stay at Disney World, you know, sitting in their hotel room. I, to me, that's very unlikely. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. and I'm sure the, NBA, you know, the, the NBA is, yeah. Those are the concerns that everybody has, right? And it's not so much about, or the players going to go out and party, they have to find a party to go to. And, <laughs> and then they have to make that conscious decision. And then they have to get the transportation to and from. And they have, there, there's so many of those variables. And then they have to test positive or they have to be positive. And then they have to go, oh my gosh, the can of worms opens up. More likely than not, if they do this and somebody gets it, it's going to be from something very innocuous, Right. It's going to be from a caterer that was asymptomatic. They didn't even test positive when they did the test, or they did the test at 9 a.m., and the person was exposed at 10 a.m., and now they've passed it on, and we don't even know where it came from. It's going to be, I don't think it's going to be a boogeyman that brings it in. It's going to be people trying to do their job. And that's really what I say. The salacious stuff when you see these kids in a pool and or a nightclub and you know, then everybody in there is sick. That stinks. That's a bad decision to make as well. I don't think you're going to see that from a league or a league employee or from a, a player or the PA. You're going to see transmission where pe people had no idea that they transmitted it. They didn't even know they were sick. They didn't even test positive. We're, we're still in that space where the testing doesn't even necessarily is the reliable thing in the room. And so those are some major things where I keep looking at it, where if you bring football fans into a stadium, even if you have them sign a waiver, the waiver can't waive gross negligence. Now, knowing what the CDC says about large gatherings and knowing what we know about the transmission is bringing half or a quarter of a stadium, inviting them in, saying, hey, nothing's wrong, even if you're having a more mask. Is that gross negligence? I think we're going to have litigation on that in the future. Yeah, that's and and there you go, exactly right there. We actually had an article, uh, you know, come out really recently on my sports blog talking about liability waivers, uh, and you know how the UFC did that, and um, yeah. you know, will the NBA, NFL, you know, try to follow suit or? 
you know, it's it's, it's an interesting yeah. conversation. I, I think yeah. I think the the waiver that used to be on the back of the ticket back when we had raw tickets, but now the quick wrap where you know you sign on to the Minnesota Timberwolves webpage and you buy a basketball ticket for the night. Right. I right. guarantee there will be an infectious disease portion added to every ticket waiver, and our kids or their our grandkids are going to look at that and go, "Why are they talking about?" coronavirus what the hell is coronavirus <laughs> is, this is going to be one of those situations where we and we've seen it the force majeure language is something i never looked at before right, right? <laughs> the, the waivers you just click them and sign it and just go inside well now it's something that people start to read a little bit more yeah. right if yeah. these are things where it tells you that when things are just boilerplate they're not just boilerplate anymore these things matter. They, there could be a billion dollars writing on a force majeure contract language. That's crazy, right? It's just something we never anticipated, and force majeure, we need to understand that. And I think it's a great learning lesson for myself and every other lawyer included that every sentence, every word of every contract matters. And for the fans, for the, the business of sport, because if there's no sport to, that can take place, there's no money to be made for the athletes, right? There's no money to be made for the athletes. Lawyers like me don't get paid by the athletes. And that means that some of my service providers don't get paid. That means that some of their families don't eat. And that trickle down, it's a very intricate web that we all have uh, in a society. And so we don't want the sports, we want sports to be arrested. We don't want that to be part of the downfall of people's lives. So that's, and I think everybody has that in the back of their mind. No matter how much money you have, it's not always just about money. Oftentimes it's about getting back to that sense of normalcy, right? It's getting back to what we like, and it's also just helping get back to the, whatever the normal is. Um, but at the same time, maybe we just have to, you know, take a time out for a period of time. It, it's so dynamic, things could change tomorrow.